peace lovers and peacemakers, welcome to Peace Mindedly. Today is the first Tuesday of April and it's noon Pacific Standard Time. We are live streaming our show from Seattle and we have a very special program for you. Today we are focusing on the power of poetry in the Middle East and in the Middle Eastern region. Poetry has long dominated the cultural landscape of many nations in this region. Poetry plays a crucial role in communicating ideas and thoughts within the 16 countries in the Middle East. Due to the nature of poetry, poets can use indirect language to communicate their messages. Therefore, poetry is an important tool in the Middle East to voice dissatisfaction or to criticize government. However, authorities do not stay quiet. They punish those poets who dare to challenge their political power. Poets may end up in jails or their belongings get confiscated or their loved ones disappear just because they said or wrote things that their governments didn't like. That makes poetry a dangerous liaison. Kevin Jones, assistant professor of history at the University of Georgia, was able to narrate and articulate such danger. The dangers of poetry, culture, politics, and revolution in Iraq is his studies of a few important poets who dared to take on oppressive regimes in Iraq. The book traces the history of poetry, political protest, and public performance in modern Iraq. In his book, Jones shows the unique contribution of nationalist and communist poets to the cultural politics of anti-colonialism and liberation in Iraq in the 20th century. Okay, I am welcoming Professor Kevin Jones. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Sarah. Absolutely. Iraqi poets are not the only contributors demanding larger space within the freedom of speech in the region. Levi Thompson, I am bringing Levi to the screen, assistant professor of Arabic at the University of Colorado Boulder, helped showcase the same demand in Syria, another country in the Middle East. He translated a collection of poems by Rami al-Ashiq, Syrian-Palestinian poet. Thompson claims that al-Ashiq's poems take the readers along a path of forced emigration from Bashar al-Assad prisons to Syria, to Amsterdam, to Auschwitz, and to Berlin, where the poet lives. My Heart Became a Bomb is a powerful collection of poetry by Rami al-Ashiq, translated and edited by Levi Thompson. I am super excited to have you here. Thank you so much. Okay, so I would like to know, I mean, this is the tradition in our show that we usually go with the first name of our guests. So there you go. I am Sarah and I'm talking with Kevin and Levi. Okay, Kevin, I would love to know why you think that poetry is a dangerous liaison in Iraq. That's a great question. Um, when I the, the title of the book, The Dangers of Poetry, I, I think of, of danger as, as fulfilling three distinct functions here. Um, on the one hand, I think there's a literal danger 
in the the kinds of poetry that I'm talking about. As you noted in the introduction, a number of these these poets ended up being arrested or sent into exile. Uh, in some cases, they were tortured because of the the threat that their poetry posed to the government. Um, particularly because of the context, the book itself really emphasizes the role of poems in a social and political context. So I, I focus heavily on the sort of momentous um, recitation or, or spontaneous recitation of a poem in, in the midst of a demonstration or, or a public event, right? So, so the first danger is literal. Uh, the second danger is political. The book talks a lot about uh, panegyrics, praise poetry, uh, and the way that poems could serve as a sort of double-edged sword uh, where the poem is, is ostensibly, the poet is ostensibly praising the king or a politician, but he's doing so in such a, in language that perhaps requests more of the ruler than the ruler can possibly uh, possibly deliver, right? Which presents a real a real danger from the poet uh, and and the ruler himself. So it becomes a sort of dangerous game of trying to use the the contours and the dynamics of the praise poem to to press your case uh, and to not be too slavishly loyal. Yes. So, Levi, is this the same thing with Syria and with Al-Asher's poems? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me here today, Sara. It's great to see you, Kevin. I really appreciate the work you've done in, in your book. And to answer your question, Rami is a younger poet, a 21st century poet, who, uh, so we're, you know, 50 or 60 years removed maybe from the poets that Kevin is talking about in the book that he wrote. Um, and he's speaking about the Iraqi context there, but there are still a lot of similarities, particularly in terms of poetry's place within society and the role of poetry as public event. So poetry still operates in Arab context sort of more broadly as public event. But in Rami's case, it's not exactly the same as many of the poets that uh, Kevin talks about in his book, because he was working within Syria at first during the initial outbreak of the uprising against Bashar al-Assad at the beginning of the last decade in 2011, and was almost he was working as a journalist, and very quickly he was thrown into prison um, and really silenced in a way. And he faced a really difficult journey out of Syria into Jordan, where um, he was put in prison again as a um, Palestinian refugee. Uh, he managed to escape that prison and then lived in hiding for two years in Jordan and then finally made his way to Germany. So his poetry that I translated in this collection, My Heart Became a Bomb, is directed to a different audience. I see him as speaking to not just an Arabic speaking audience, but also to Westerners, particularly in Germany, and then now uh, in English translation to people in the English speaking world. He, his poetry has been translated into several languages, a lot of it into German, naturally, because he's been there. So the dangers of this poetry are still there, but they're different in a way than Yes, they both, are I mean, the all the poets, exactly. So in case of Baharul Ulum, he uh, suffered a great deal 
in prison and also um, Rami suffered in, in prison. So nevertheless, there are consequences if you speak your mind or if you challenge the authority and doesn't really matter, at least in my experience in the Middle East, it's, it's always a challenge. So here's the issue. In the Iranian sort of Farsi saying, we have this proverb or, or phrase that we say, okay, so you, because everything is indirect, at least, I mean, challenging authority and criticizing authority is indirect. So we say that you just throw your, um, your saying on the ground, I'm just translating, and then whoever is this saying is directed to is going to pick up. So in, in a sense, these poets are throwing their criticism and the authorities are picking up and also interacting and responding to the challenges that they've been faced, aren't they, Kevin? Uh, yes, yes, I, I agree. Uh, although I would say that, that there are um, there are a number of cases in my book that I deal with where what's being said is not indirect at all, right? It's very much direct. Uh, we're talking about a, a major public event where the, the prime minister or the king or someone is on stage and everyone knows exactly what the poet is saying. And, and as part of the, the game of this is can you sit there and either directly denounce or, you know, use sort of veiled language, but everyone still knows exactly what you're talking about and, and walk off the stage and get away with it. Um, and, and if so, or even if not, maybe the, the, um, the damage that has been inflicted by your willingness to do this in public and invite retaliation has, has served this message after all. Uh, but there are, there are I, I do agree that there, there are a number of uh, other cases that I deal with the book and elsewhere that- um, So, so here, here's the case, wouldn't they know that they are gonna be face retaliation of saying or, or uh, criticizing authority and they did it anyway? Kevin? Sure. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. I think in, in many cases they, they did absolutely know that they would face retaliation and, and did it anyway because it, it became sort of a, a badge of honor that if, um, you know, there's especially in the late 1940s, early 1950s, there, there was a lot of criticism against the so-called cafe poets, poets who were willing to just sit in cafes and write to their friends and, you know, criticize the government in private, but not willing to, to stand up publicly and do it. So it became a sort of uh, badge of honor to be able to sort of suffer rebuke. But then in other cases, especially earlier on in, in the 1920s when, when King Faisal was really uh, trying to cultivate the loyalty of Iraqi poets and their support as a way of justifying his own, own claims to power, it was more of a, of a game, a sort of cat and mouse game, or, or I don't know exactly the, the phrase to use here, but, but where the, the poets might criticize him a little bit implicitly and, and push the envelope a little bit to see what they could get away with. And they might embarrass him uh, and he might tolerate it to a certain extent, but there was a sort of constant test of the boundaries. How much can you push the state um, uh, to achieve the, the goals you're Yes, for? and for Rami's case, uh, he was basically arrested for his journalism and for his uh, poems, and then and then tortured, and then needed to leave the leave the region. So uh, again, for uh, Rami's case, wouldn't he, I mean, he 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 would know that uh, he's criticizing authority and government, so therefore it's going to be a consequences, but, but he did it anyway, Levi. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it, it's a 
again, a similar situation that we can compare to the Iraqi case, but then there are some differences there as well. Um, initially, when Bashar al-Assad took power in Syria in 2000, and then the early years of the 2000s, there was sort of this cultural thaw, and there was a little bit more uh, leeway for poets and culture makers in Syria to explore um, different themes that really hadn't been done before, because uh, there's a lot of government involvement and cultural production there. Uh, but then in the early days of what we've been calling the Arab Spring, and people have different opinions about that now, but the, there was this crackdown that started to happen and things shifted very quickly. And Rami being part of the group of, uh, well, there were all sorts of different people who rose up against the government, but being part of a group of young people in particular, he continued to push those boundaries. And I, I think, and not all of the poems in this collection are from that early period. Most of the ones in the collection, uh, My Heart Became a Bomb, come from after, from Jordan and then from Germany. But I have read a lot of Rami's other work. And in some of the earlier poems, he, he does make these oblique references, sort of criticizing maybe the patriarchy rather than the political situation specifically as a stand-in for the political situation in Syria at the time. And he continues to do that every now and then in some of the prose pieces that I've worked with him on as well uh, that are coming out in another translated collection, hopefully within the next few months, uh, called Ever Since I Did Not Die. And then in these poems, uh, he's using that same thing, but also I think he is more willing to be very direct um, about uh, speaking out against dictatorship, totalitarianism, things like that. He's very direct in these poems in a way that maybe we would not have found were he still writing in Syria. Yes. Uh, Here is my challenge to you, and I would like to know how you are going to take the challenge. Okay, so let me just build the case. I would like to know what we are missing. Both of you are scholars, uh, studied Middle Eastern histories and uh, fluent in Arabic, translating and going through the text and everything. I would like to know what we are missing. Okay, so at least for Iranian studies and at least uh, for the country that I know really, really well, and I try to read books and studies that is coming out about Iran and its relation against Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and a few countries that I follow. So I see, I see that writers are not, or scholars are not, putting some of the very important informations that must be there. And they are not putting, and for various reasons. First, even in the uh, journalism and media media work, uh, we, we, we forced to just cut some of the information because there's not mm, uh, enough space or because it's not relevant to the, store, the, the larger uh, point of view. Or sometimes we are told by the editors that we must cut this because this idea is, is not supported by the, by the organization who is supporting this media platform. Or we have to cut it because of the political uh, issues and political connotations that this paragraph or this information is going to uh, put forward. Very specific example, 
Um, so this is not a scholarly work, but it's an it's, it's the work that almost everyone is familiar with is Azar Nafisi's um, reading Lolita in Tehran, right? I was so <laughs> absolutely angry to know that she is living one of the major information about U.S. Um, interference inter intervene in the country in 1953, orchestrating a coup and toppling and ousting and just basically getting rid of the first democratic government in, in, in the Middle East region and just not talking about Mossadegh, not talking about Shah, I mean, the CIA orchestrated um, issues that many other writers talked about extensively. And, and then I was thinking why she's missing this important information that has to be placed within her book and within her studies. And I always come up with the same I mean, reasoning that first, uh, the organizations who are supporting to publish this book does not want to have this information to be included. Editors do not want the information to be included, and it's maybe a personal preferences. So I would like to know in your studies what you are missing that you wish you had more freedom of not missing those information. Kevin. Uh, that's a great question. Um... I'm trying to think that, I mean, I, I didn't feel, I certainly didn't feel any pressure in, in writing the book to remove certain bits of information, although I was forced to remove a lot because of word, word count concerns. But, you know, I would say that, that this this project for me initially started out as my PhD dissertation. Yes. And it was originally conceived as, as a project about uh, anti-colonial thought and anti-colonial activism. So the dissertation itself had a lot more politics in there. It had a lot more um, use of uh, American sources and discussion of American foreign policy. And, and that kind of went away from the book project because I really wanted to tease out this broader tale of, of the sort of social and cultural history of, of poetic dissidence. And I think the project turned out a lot better because of that, it, even though it was, I think maybe at times that's the sort of political concerns that shaped my initial interest in the project maybe receded into the background. So they might be more implicit than explicit. Um, oh, okay, Kevin, here's the catch. Okay. Right. So then you said that American foreign policy and American studies, and I, I read the book throughout, and most of the references are from American, American studies. And not, although you are translating the poetries and you're translating and there are interviews and so forth, but Aren't you missing uh, Iraqi's point of view of writing about Iraqi poems? Um, do you mean in, in terms of the including archival them, sources? In, including them in the larger, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, definitely. The, I mean, the, the big challenge for those of us working on Iraq is is the absence of the archives, um, which is largely a result of the the U.S. invasion in, in uh, two thousand three, right? I mean, there there are 
the, the Bathquadi archives um, were housed at the Hoover Institute in, in Stanford for a long time and could be accessed, but that's beyond my period. Uh, so it wasn't a help for me, even if I could get past the ethical concerns of, of doing research there uh, on, on documents that had been stolen from Iraq. So yeah, the, it, it was a major concern. I mean, it, one, one of the reasons why the project developed in the way that it did was because I wanted to work on Iraq uh, and I wanted to incorporate Iraqi voices from the 20th century and without state archives, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, and so in some ways, I, I tried to resolve the problem by um, uh, using things like poetry as a source. I mean, there's a lot of sources that are out there uh, that include Iraqi voices that, that just have not historically been treated as historical sources. Um, so, so I used um, poems, newspapers, memoirs, wherever I and could. Kevin, why Iraq? Uh, I mean, I think the simple explanation is that the the Iraq War started when I was an undergraduate, and and I was involved a little bit in activism uh, against the war, and it, it got me interested in the country and in learning more uh, about uh, culture and society inside the country beyond uh, just what what other Americans were concerned with. Yes, Levi, what are we missing? So, uh, actually, just like. Uh, Kevin, I came to my study of Arabic in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. I started my undergraduate studies in 2003, and um, I was very opposed to our involvement there. And to be honest, I have a lot to say in response to this question, and uh, I could say quite a bit. So you may have to cut me off at some Please, point. Please, yes, go but, ahead. Um, you, you brought up uh, a very interesting turning point in the history of the modern Middle East that I think is extremely important, and that is the 1953 coup uh, against Mossadegh in Iran, which the ramifications of which go beyond just Iran. And I think not everybody does this, but there is a general tendency among uh, contemporary scholarship, whatever the discipline, for scholars to focus on one national um, context in particular. So you have scholars that work on, say, Iran or Iraq or Syria or Egypt, and a lot of scholars work on Egypt, but there's not a lot of comparative work across these contexts. And I would say particularly so between different linguistic contexts. So say Turkey and Iran or the Arab world and the Persian speaking world, things like this, right? And I'll do all of them under the Middle Eastern studies. Or, or to do that, and you know, you collect scholars who work on different national contexts together in a department, and that's great. And I, I think there's a lot of potential for that sort of organization. But then having one study that does comparative work across contexts is not something you frequently find. So I think that the aftermath of the coup in Iran has a lot to do with, for instance, poetic developments that went on in Iraq. Uh, Badr Shekhar Sayab is one of the poets Kevin writes about in his book, and it completely changed the trajectory of his work um, after he experienced that coup. And Kevin uh, talks about this in the dissertation and I think in the book too. Uh, I've read both, and thank you very much for that work. But then speaking about Azar Nafisi and uh, your, your um, take on what she left out, leaving this coup out of the history she gives. I, I also, I mean, I think we need to be highly critical of her work and what audience she's writing for. Yes. Uh, I think Hamid Dabashi has a great critique of her work. Um, I forget the title of the book that's in. It 
I think it's brown skin, white masks. Um, but Debashi's critique of that book in particular, reading Lolita in Tehran, is great for this. Um, I think that while this is not uh, so much always the problem within academia, for popular readership in the West, they want things like that. People want things that they know and are familiar with. And if it is, say, an Iranian woman who's saying, look, we read this Western work in Tehran, how interesting is that? Uh, that sells, frankly. So yes. we have to think about audience as far as this goes. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, as far as the translation that I've done, I think that one of the main reasons it got picked up by a press is there's interest in, number one, in the U.S. in immigration as an issue, not necessarily immigration of Syrians to Europe, where it's actually a much bigger issue. And there's a lot of real interest among uh, publishers, among people who publish digitally. Rami has gotten a lot of exposure for his writing in German translation because it's not at all the same, but uh, the immigration situation in the United States from say Mexico or South America, uh, there are a lot of people immigrating to the US and there's this border issue and it's always in the news. And it's a similar situation with folks from the Middle East, from Syria, say, exactly. going to so, Germany. Exactly. So last week I interviewed a Der Spiegel foreign correspondent and she's managing a poetry project. And the, the project is it's is about bringing all of those poets, Syrians, Iraqis who had entered Germany to share their stories and poems. And I have to mention that, you know, as a journalist, we know a lot and a vast, vast information and uh, the depth is the tip of the fingertips. Uh, I would love to know a bit more about the construct of the book. So how did you structure your book after this very quickly? And we go to the break. So how did you uh, structure the book, Kevin? Uh, the book itself is, is structured um, loosely chronologically, right? So each mm -hmm. each chapter deals with a particular era, whether it's the the, the waning years of the, the Ottoman Empire or the, the British Mandate or or the, I guess the second chapter deals with World War One itself and the British Mandate, but but each chapter within so so even though it's shaped by chronological concerns, um, the chapter itself also has uh, a general theme, right? So the final chapter, which deals with the post-revolutionary period, the Qasim years between fifty-eight and sixty-three, uh, really focuses heavily on on the gender politics of um, the conflict between national. Is it and written for public or for scholars or for students? It's written primarily for scholars and graduate students. Although, I mean, I, I, I want to make it as accessible as possible, but definitely the, the big goal in mind is, is for scholars. Yes, but I learned, I mean, I read and I learned a great deal. Uh, Levi, how my heart became a bomb is really structured. So it's not based, first of all, on any one collection that is available in Arabic, which makes it sort of different kind of text. And it's, it is that way because Rami worked with me to select which poems we wanted to put in it and how we thought they might best be ordered. Um, we got the opinion of some reviewers from the press at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, where the Center for Middle Eastern Studies Press is publishing this book. It comes out today, I think, actually, for the public. Uh, <laughs> yes, and it's available uh, on any 
place you usually go to find books and uh, should be going out today. So if anyone's interested, but the press had some input uh, about how we should order the poems, but we didn't really change very much. And I was happy to leave the final decisions to Rami. Um, he has had a lot of input in uh, not just the process of translation, but really the entire project. Um, and it, it wasn't just me who translated these poems, although I did a lot of editing work to give them a coherent voice across all of the different translations. When you work with different translators, sometimes people really do have their own voice. So I, I worked with two other translators. Um, uh, yes, yeah, when we come back from the break, uh, my question is going to be what we uh, lose in translation and what was your uh, interaction with Rami. Stay put, please. Welcome again to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring finest peaceful bridge makers. We are live streaming our show on many social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and uh, on many podcast channels, almost 11. It's very easy to find us peace-mindedly search and you'll find us also all of this programming and much more goes to goldtune.com g-o-l-t-u-n-e goldtune.com is a peace journalism news magazine make sure when you are visiting visiting us uh, to leave your email address so then to be on the know about what we are featuring and what we are doing with our podcast show for many weeks ahead and it's speaking of which next week is ramadan it is the month of worship prayers staying away from any wrongdoing and food in this month, Muslims fast, depending on where you live. Uh, the fasting goes between 12 hours to 21 hours. In Seattle, it's around 16, 17 hours, and it goes for 30 days. But here's the catch. So don't we pay more attention to the things that we've been told to stay away? And I think, I think we are. Our first episode in Ramadan is about food. Recipe for Refuge, Culinary Journeys to America is a book by many refugees who benefited from the Refugee Women Alliance or RIVA, an organization based in Seattle. We will talk to RIVA's executive director, Mahnaz Eshito, and the person who edited and put the recipes together, Bettina Simmons. You do not want to miss this episode because we're going to cover Middle Eastern cuisine, African cuisine, and South Asian cuisine, as well as Chinese cuisine. So this book, because refugees are from uh, different countries, we are going to talk about many different foods, and it's Ramadan, and it's the time of talking about food. Anyway, a week after, we will discuss how Sultan Selim, one of the most powerful Ottoman emperors, tried to create a modern world. We will talk with Alan Mikhail, Yale University professor of early modern history and the Middle Eastern studies, his latest book, God's Shadow, Sultan Selim, His Ottoman Empire and the Making of the Modern World will explain Ottoman Empire's hunger for power and privilege. 
Back to this hour, we are talking to Kevin Jones, professor of history at the University of Georgia and author of The Dangers of Poetry, Culture, Politics, and Revolution in Iraq, and Levi Thompson, professor of Arabic at the University of Colorado, Boulder, who translated My Heart Became a Bomb, collection of poems by Rami Al-Ashir, Syrian-Palestinian poet based in Berlin. Okay, what do we lose in translation? Levi. Uh, so we lose a lot in translation, but we gain other things. Um, let me speak particularly to the case of Arabic poetry because this is something I am really very interested in. Arabic poetry, as it came into its full form during uh, the past I guess 1500 years, it has a long, long history. Like many other poetries that we find, meter and rhyme are really central to the poem and what makes a poem a poem. If you read the pre-modern Arab critics, um, this is what they focus on uh, about how a poem comes to be. It's metered, rhymed, things that we say that have meaning. That's the basic definition of what a poem is. So when we go to translate a poem, we have a lot of choices to make, and these are difficult choices frequently. Do we translate the poem for the content, what the words are saying? Do we pay attention to the form of the poem, the meter, the rhythm, the rhyme? If we don't do that, are we actually translating the poem? Now that's a question that is hard to answer. It's, there's no real answer to that. Um, with Rami's poems, which are influenced, yes, by the history of Arabic poetry and the, the formal features of Arabic poetry show up here and there, at least the poems in this collection, we might call them free verse, although I wouldn't call them free verse in the same sense as that term is used in Arabic poetry, um, because it's something very specific. Uh, meter and rhyme still function in that poetry, and meter and rhyme still function even in this very modern poetry that Rami has written, but not in the same patterns that we used to find. So uh, I throw in a rhyme when I think it's appropriate in these translations. Um, I focused a lot on content, uh, mainly because I was working with Rami and he wanted the content highlighted. That is okay with me. I, I let him have some say there. However, in my academic work, and I know this is different than how Kevin approaches things, um, because I'm not so much a historian, but more a literary critic, the form of the poem matters a, a lot for what I'm trying to say. So I frequently, in several of the articles I've written on Iraqi poetry, actually that's where my academic focus more is, I do pay attention to those formal aspects when I'm translating if it matters for the analysis. Now, that is not an easy thing to do. And um, it's not like we can just take Arabic meters and 
put them into English meters. You have and to also, we are talking about the modern and more ancient. I mean, not ancient, but not too modern. Uh, for Kevin's book, it's not as modern as Rami and probably is a different set of um, uh, issues. But uh, I know that, Kevin, you tried to stay true to the translation and it was more of uh, translating the content. But what did you miss in, in this translation? I mean, I think I think my my translations miss a, a lot of the aesthetic value, and that, that's a sacrifice I, I just made. I mean, I, I would never submit any of the the translations in here. In fact, I haven't I haven't translated a full poem except for very very short poems. Uh, in any case, um, I'm, I'm dealing with the poem as an act and and translating the relevant parts. Very much focused on on content. Um, it, you know, if I feel like the the poem has a particularly good or bad aesthetic value then I would convey that in my own comments uh, because I'm not trans trained as a translator. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I can try and, and convey something of the beauty of the, the, of the poem if, if I can, but in, in general, I'm, I'm just sort of acknowledging that, that the, the way the project is conceived, that the sheer range of different poems and different poets, different styles uh, across a 60 or 70 year period uh, would, would really be impossible or would take years anyway to do it um, uh, in, a, in a particularly sort of in, in a manner that's that's really true to the, the aesthetic value of the original. So a lot of the aesthetics is. is, is yes. Um, when you try to convince or when you would like to tell your students to read the book, uh, what is your analogy? How would you how would you pursue them that this is a good book to read? Uh, I really usually emphasize that, that the book is about it, it's about poems as social acts, right? So so I convince them that that I, I'm not uh, I'm not discussing poems as texts or or cultural artifacts, but I'm I'm discussing a a performance, a provocative act, something that's embedded in a particular social context that tells you something about Iraqi politics and society at the time uh, beyond just, just words on the page, because oftentimes the, the importance of these poems is, is what was spoken aloud uh, and then what was remembered about the poem. Um, and and I, I do find that students are, are really pretty interested in that. I mean, everyone loves dissident art and, and the idea of, of someone really challenging political structures. Which one of the poets are your favorite? I think I would have to say Mohammed Metia Jawahari. Um, his, his poetry is really, really beautiful. Um, and um, uh, in a lot of ways, it was the most difficult to translate. Um, and I think it lost the most in translation, um, but, but really beautiful stuff to read. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, at least uh, in the Farsi, Turkish, more Arabic um, language, um, I mean, there are too many implications. It's imply of, it's so flowery, and it's extremely difficult to, to translate. And depends on the poems. For instance, in the Farsi or Persian culture, it's way more difficult to translate Hafez compared to Rumi. Sure. Or yeah, or but but I'm thinking that it's the same analogy. I mean, more in depth or flowery the poems, and it depends on the era of the poet. More difficult it is. Right, absolutely. I mean, my, my other favorite poem poet uh, in the book is Bahrul Alum, uh, who is actually really easy to translate because he wrote he wrote really for for the masses and and for workers uh, in general, and he wrote very simple, direct. Um, direct what are the main differences between Jawahiri and Bahrul Alum? I think really the, the I mean the big difference is is just in 
the sort of simplicity of language. Uh, Bahralum's poems tended to be much shorter, much more, much simpler diction, very direct, wasted no time in getting to the point, um, much more conducive to sort of demonstrations. A, a lot of the ones that I used were, were things he composed spontaneously while he was being carried on, on people's shoulder tops in the middle of demonstrations. Uh, so things that would be very easy to chant. Yes, and then he suffered more for his songs in prison. So I wonder, um, isn't this more heroic to stay in the country, even though you know that they're going to come after you and everything is going to be extremely difficult for you and your family, rather than to just leave like Bahar Ulum stayed in Iraq and Jawahiri left? Yeah, I I think so, although... You know, maybe there's a difference. As I, I think Bahrulum was arrested earlier and, and wasn't given the chance, whereas Jawahiri, perhaps because oh. he had close connections to, to several figures in the regime and mm-hmm. had such public visibility, was, was given more leeway and allowed to leave. Uh, but definitely, mm-hmm. I, I, I do see it as particularly heroic to, to, to be willing to, to suffer for the sake of mm-hmm. I would like to know what are your next projects? So I know, Kevin, that you are working on a few projects. Let us start with Levi. So what is your next project, Levi? Uh, So I'm working on a book like Kevin's book. It's the book that you have to publish if you want tenure. Uh, I'm I'm working on that book. And it uh, also is based on my dissertation, which is a comparative study of modernist poetry across Arabic and Persian from 1922 to 1967 in the Persian case and 1947 to 67 in the Arabic case. But with that project, I'm trying to situate this modernist comparative project across Arabic and Persian within the broader context of world literature and modernism. And to I want to do that in order to argue for people who study modernism in other contexts, mainly French or English, the ones that people in the West are more familiar with, to show them that Arabic and Persian have something to contribute, something maybe necessary to contribute to our conception of what modernism is. And um, things are moving along. I, I don't have any news about that project, but that's what I'm working on. But I can't for. wait to read, honestly. <laughs> I just can't, especially, you know, comparative literature. I would like to ask Kevin about his uh, next project. And I, I am going to, I was thinking about a question, but uh, Kevin, what is your project? Uh, so I'm I'm uh, working on a couple of projects right now, which are both in in very preliminary stages. But but one is is really focused on the the evolution of the the language of sectarianism in modern Iraq, and it's it's really builds off of a, a point I started to develop in the dangers of poetry, which is about how anti-communist rhetoric sort of gradually bled into anti-Shi rhetoric in modern Iraq. And so I really want to sort of tease out that idea and trace it beyond poetry. Uh, in, in both Iraq and, and uh, some some other uh, context in the region. Uh, the, the second project that I'm working on is is about the what I think of as the, the art of rigging elections, which which really focuses heavily on the colonial mandates in the period. Because I think everyone, I think of, I've been thinking about this a lot in my teaching. We always say to our students that, well, you know, elections were rigged. But but I 
for one, like always had difficulty conceiving of, of exactly how they were rigged. And, and so uh, over time, I've been convinced that there was a real sort of sort of uh, evil art form involved here in trying to convince people that the democratic process was working, whereas there was sort of multiple opportunities at various levels to, to rig things in a certain direction for the... Um, Excellent. It's, this is my question. I remember that. And then we go to the closing. My perception, I mean, I'm, I was raised, born in Tehran. I've been in the United States 20 years. My perception of how I see these two cultures, Iranian and American, is that uh, in the Iranian context, we are so heavily focused on words. That's why poetry and writing and these kind of things are really becomes important and takes place because we cannot fully engage into a visual art compared to the United States. We are we have more freedom, and then therefore we are uh, we focus more on visual art like cinema things like that uh, compared to written. Or although we do have, I mean big, big, huge, huge um, literature and vast. But uh, in my opinion, the depth of literature or written words, uh, not, not recently, because the governments are very oppressive, in the past is richer than the United States. I just want to throw this idea and see what you think. I, maybe I'm wrong, so prove me wrong. What do you think? Levi, go. Shall I go first? Well, I I definitely would first say we can't discount the role of cinema in Iran and the just excellent films that come out of that national context. I'm really quite partial to Iranian cinema as a national cinema. I think it's excellent. Um, so I don't know. That might push back against your position on the visual art. Yes, that's, that's all right. <laughs> what is your take, Kevin? Uh, Oh, yeah, go ahead. Levi, you wanted to... Well, uh, you know, I, I think we have to look specifically at different artists and writers and poets and things like that. I would certainly agree with saying that poetry has really been shunted aside within American discourse, whether political or more uh, general among people. Um, you just don't see poetry as part of daily life. Um, and I think that is an important distinction that I have to make for students, for instance, about, you know, why am I teaching you about Arabic poetry? It's because it matters, really does matter. Yes. Maybe really poetry in matter. the U.S. doesn't matter in the same way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. That's, okay, that's Kevin, point. what is your take? Yeah, I agree entirely with with uh, you, Sarah, and, and with Levi as well. That um, one of the one of the arguments that I try and make throughout the book is that that what we think of in in the U.S. as this, with respect to poetry, uh, you know, it's very much seen as an element of high culture that's completely distinct from popular culture. And I think that sort of high culture, low culture, or mass culture uh, divide doesn't really work uh, in the context of Iraq and, and in most of the Middle East as well, because poetry especially as an oral culture, doesn't even depend on literacy. Um, and, and even though many of these poets are the sort of uh, supreme intellectuals and, and might in, even enjoy positions in Parliament or the Senate, so they, they're, you know, in, in some ways seem like the epitome of high culture, they have mass popular appeal as well. And that's Excellent. something that's totally missing. Yes, we are talking from our houses and our offices. So we just right now have a beautiful sunshine uh, from, from Kevin's side. I just wanted to mention, please stay put. You are watching Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peace 
School Bridge Makers. This hour, we talked to Kevin Jones, author of The Dangers of Poetry, Culture, Politics, and Revolution in Iraq. I do have the book with me. It's here, and it's a, it's a very good read. And Levi Thompson, editor and translator of My Heart Became a Bomb collection of poems by Rami Al-Ashif, who is Syrian-Palestinian poet in, in Berlin. So you can find these books on goldtoon.com and, and on many other places. It's, it's available. At the end of every hour, we ask our guests to share uh, something meaningful about peace, kindness, compassion. Can be a nostalgic childhood story, can be a verse or a poem that they really enjoy, can be a statement, anything that really connects us with peace and kind and and compassion. I think I'm going to start with Levi and then I go with with Kevin. Go ahead, Levi. So I, I did my homework. I found a relevant passage from the translation that I did by Rami. I'll introduce it quickly and uh, it will only take a moment. I'm just going to read one hunk of a poem called Fatima Carries Two Wounds in One Hand. It's a reflection of the poetic persona who may indeed have a lot in common with Rami, the poet in this poem, about a journey that a mother takes from what seems to be Syria, the Middle East, to Europe across the sea. And it's a poem in 19 parts, so it's really quite long. I'm just going to read one because peace comes up in it, and I, I think this speaks to uh, what this section of the program is really all about. So this is section 13 in Fatima Carries Two Wounds in One Hand. It's called Waiting. I will wait for peace. I will sing every song I know on the shores to the water. Women's secrets end at the seashore. Oh sea, wait for the whole story and don't ask questions. My mother is in your hands, so tell her, smile, and I will laugh such that my features turn to rain and your face becomes a spike of grain. And that's Rami Alashik. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Very good, Kevin. Thank you. Um, I'd like to read a, a short passage from a poem written by Mohammed Fale Baralalum called Where Is My Right? that uh, was written in 1956, shortly after he was released from prison. Uh, and I see it as a really sort of passionate plea for, for peace and justice in his own country. So this is just a section of it. But he writes, You wolves have trampled the people for thousands of years. So leave me to my religion, for what business is it of yours? Have you received a writ from God to intervene in my affairs when God's book cries from the mosque, where is my right? These hypocrites shamelessly deceive God in full public view, for what is duping God for those who fill the world with deception? If they could seize all power, they would leave none for God, and God would be next to me crying out, where is my right? Taxes are extracted by force from the very poorest of people who have performed a thousand tasks and never won their right. The losses fall on them while the sh their sheep are stolen by politicians. But the criminal is the poor man who cries, where is my right? A young girl found nothing but swirling dust to cover herself. So she serviced the whole neighborhood, but did not own an inch. She longed for death so that she could at last own a tomb. But the grave digger above her cried, where is my right? 
What is this and the like except an open field of prostitution where this land is sold in the most despicable trading markets? If our religion says to hurl 80 stones at the prostitute, but the judge who decrees is the culprit, where is my right? Liberate this nation if you are truly preachers of sincerity from the chains of ignorance, for freedom will repel the greedy. Throw your weight towards securing the rights of workers, bless the huts ever crying to the palaces, where is my right? Beautiful. And the poem was from which poet? Uh, from Barolum. Barolum. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us uh, this discussion, today's episode. For next episode, we will discuss about food in different countries and within different cuisines created by refugee women in, in Seattle. Thank you so much and Khoda Hafiz. Thank you. Thank you.